Welcome, Hunters. This is the I'm Hunter podcast, and you've got Rod, Jess, and Tash here what is today. What's the girl's name? <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's usually Mum that forgets you, not me. Um, we're, we're about to talk to uh, a guy called Daniel Boniface, um, and he started a petition in Queensland um, to open up uh, conservation hunting in Queensland for public areas because. In Australia at the moment, Queensland's probably the one of the most restricted states as far as hunting is concerned. So we wanted to have a chat to him and talk about what he's trying to achieve, um, talk about um, hunting in general as far as Queensland's concerned, uh, because it's a great state. They've got a lot of really good animals up there to hunt. Um, and currently, uh, like, and I know this for an absolute fact, um, those animals are being culled. The cull programs come out every year. And so if you're not on private property, um, you don't have access on public land to hunt the animals that are being killed off by the government, which in my understanding is an absolute bloody travesty. It's just a complete waste because at the end of the day, the meat doesn't get used, you know. And when you look at what happens with hunting, a lot of hunters have to pay for their permits to go and do it, so it's money going back into the state government, whereas with culling programs, the government's paying for professional hunters to come in and do these do these massive culls. So it just really seems wasteful all around when the other option is to let hunters on there pay their permits every year and actually get something out of it themselves and contribute to the economy and help the problem. Couldn't agree more. So we're going to call Daniel right now, um, and here we go. Hello, Daniel speaking. G'day, Daniel. It's Rod Byfield here from Hunt Shack. How are you? Good, thanks, Rob. How are you? Obviously, welcome to the podcast, first of all. Um, it's Hi. really great to have you on board. <laughs> There's two of us here as well, just a little bit more silent at the moment. <laughs> Excellent. Let's start with a bit of your background, mate. You know, where are you from? Uh, where have you been? How have you been involved in hunting? Okay, so uh, I grew up in, in northern New South Wales. I'm not actually from Queensland at all. I grew up in a, in a sunny little coastal area called the Clarence Valley. Um, a couple of little towns, well, three towns really, uh, Lawrence and Plain and Sunny Amber now on the coast. Um, and then I moved, after I met my, my wife, I, uh, I moved to Brisbane um, not that long ago. And so I've been in Brisbane for... Long five years now, um, and uh, yeah, initially it was a very reluctant move, but um, now that I'm here and I'm, I've, I've been here for a number of years, it's actually opened up a number of opportunities for me, and one of those has been getting into shooting as a sport, and also uh, with pushing the petition. Right. So, so you didn't grow up hunting yourself? No, no, I didn't. No. Yeah. Um, I uh, when I was in my early twenties, I had a Hoyt compound bow, and I. Thoroughly enjoyed archery for a for a time for, for about two, probably a couple of years, two or three years. Unfortunately, I, I just wasn't able to maintain uh, that hobby. It's very time consuming, especially yeah, yeah. the bow hunting. It's actually, it, it, I think it's actually more expensive than uh, rifle shooting. Yeah. So that so that fell by the wayside, and yeah, since I've been in Brisbane, I, I basically through social circles started spending time with people who were into into shooting, which is something I have always been interested in. And I ended up, through much persistence and skilled negotiation, managed to persuade my wife to uh, allowing me to get into the sport. <laughs> and, then, yeah, and then with acquiring firearms. So I've actually only been a licensed firearm owner for, gosh, just over 12 months now, to, you know, a year and a half. 
Yep. Wow. Yeah, mate, you're a, you're a newbie. That's that's good to hear. Yeah. And you've do you feel, you've obviously dived in head first. You've obviously dived in head first. I have. Yeah. As I said, yeah, I obsess very quickly. I digest information and become very passionate with these things. And uh, yeah, I am very I'm very passionate about about uh, shooting as a sport and in particular hunting. Yeah. Oh, very good. That's so, excellent to hear. So you're studying environmental science at uni at the moment. Did you get into hunting after that? Um, about halfway through my degree, yeah. So I graduate in November this year. Um, I've been studying full time for three years and I have just taken my foot off the gas for the last year and just allowing myself to roll over the finish line with my graduation. It has been quite a stressful time uh, from when I first enrolled with a number of different family events taking place and moving houses and starting new jobs and whatnot. Not, but, not, uh, yeah, about half, about half not the to mention the workload. I, um, <laughs> yeah, I decided to get into sport uh, shooting. Yeah. Right. Yeah, wow. Yeah, no, I didn't. I mean, um, Dad grew up hunting, so he kind of did it for for ages as a kid, both hunting and trapping and things like that. And so he went through that whole process of of just learning it, you know, as he was growing up. Whereas we didn't have that because um, we lived overseas for a long time while we were growing up. So Dad kind of had a bit of a, an extended break from shooting and hunting himself, um, aside from a couple of. Um, trips overseas to Africa and things like that in between us girls especially we we weren't involved in it at all in fact I think when we went to Africa dad told us we weren't allowed to come out because he thought we'd cry which was probably true at the time (laughs) because I think it was only just after that I um, spent half an hour crying over a squirrel that might have accidentally got caught up in some car tires (laughs) but um, yeah I didn't start hunting myself until I was 17, I think, was the first time I went out. Um, Tash was a little bit younger when she got involved in it. Yeah, I was probably 14 um, or 15. It's interesting just seeing more and more people now choosing to get into hunting as adults, you know, not necessarily growing up around it or growing up with it, but being presented that opportunity as an adult and and taking it up. We really, really like seeing that. Yeah, I think think so much of that is coming about through the proliferation or the the prevalence of, of information constantly being available to people. People are exposed to new things uh, more and more, and, and I think that's really, I think that's really great. You don't necessarily have to have grown up in in the country or on a farm to to get into the shooting sports. It's it's fantastic, you know. And for me personally, at thirty two, you know, I got my firearms license when I was thirty one, or maybe even thirty. I see it. I've just got to hook in and, and make up for lost time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we'd mom's, we'd, mom's we'd certainly be be happy to help you out there buddy um, no worries at all mate um uh, you know it, it it's uh, going back to your kind of your, your education and all this kind of stuff that you're obviously progressing and, and about to finish off um one of the one of the things which is kind of a, i guess a little bit interesting is you're 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 studying to be an environmental scientist right yep so you know the kind of one of the one of the key words that and, and I, I guess key coin phrases that's thrown around all the time is the environmental activist, right? What is the difference between an environmental scientist and an environmental activist? I mean, I, I know the difference. I understand it clear, loud and clear, but I know a lot of a lot of listeners out there will be will be interested in your response uh, sitting in 
obviously the 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 educated side of that spectrum as far as and i'm not trying to take the pee <laughs> deliberately but um but uh obviously you're coming coming from uh that educational side of things um and uh and a lot of because a lot of a lot of these activists actually claim that these environmental scientists are on their side i think i think the difference is is that um you know, people people immerse themselves in a, in a three year degree um, or tertiary study of some sort for for a long period of time, and and then it, and that involves you know, and that's the, the sciences have been developed over thousands and thousands of years, and and, it, and it's it's about yes, it's about sentiment, and yes, it's about a state of mind and a state of being, but it's not solely based on it's not ideological, it's it's a profession. Yeah. And, and, and people immerse themselves in, in learning that. I'm, I'm just trying to articulate the difference as well as I can. I, I, think, I think people who, I think environmental scientists need to look at things objectively because from, from a greater worldview, they have to take into account that there are other stakeholders and there are other interests and, and, uh, and, and inevitably, you know, inevitably, as the human population grows, development is a necessary evil. And so our footprint on the planet uh, in the way that we uh, develop sites and, and the way that we use environmental resources has to be managed very, very carefully. And that takes and that takes a certain level of, of study and education and commitment. Whereas activism, I think that, that, that looking at it, Scientifically, you have direct and indirect actions, and when uh, individuals feel strongly about something but don't have a means or a form, or feel that they don't have a means or a form to make their voice heard, they they resort to some form of direct action, which more often than not is activism or protesting, or uh, as we've seen recently on on farms around the country, we're having people breach biosecurity barriers and uh, trespass and breaking into and, and those sorts of things. So. I think that one is driven solely by sentiment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and to, a, to a great degree, that's actually uh, very misguided. And as an environmental scientist, whilst I appreciate that people want to see the environment protected and preserved for future generations, I think there's a way and a means of going about it. And yes, people's sentiment should drive them to do something, but let that something be uh, constructive well-educated. Yeah, I think that's the best way that I can explain it. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's what we're kind of seeing as well with the more general public reaction to some of these things that are going on where you see that, you know, people are coming out and they're going, this isn't right, you know, this isn't right to act like this. Yes, it's good to protect the environment. Yes, it's good to care for animals. Yes, it's good, you know, to want all of these things. But when you go to the extreme lengths that they're going to, and the extreme actions that they're going to to try and pursue that, that's when you start to go, people start to lose, they, they lose perspective for your cause, you know, they lose care for your cause at that at that stage because they go, well, you know, I can't be on board with that kind of action that they take. It's not so much the idea that's wrong, it's the action that goes with it. Exactly, exactly. And and I think that whilst ever people are functioning within lawful guidelines, wherever there's, where they're functioning within the world, then we, we have, to ex- have to expect that, as a natural expression of freedom of speech that we're going to hear and see things that we don't agree with. Uh, 
beyond what's set in law as, as being okay. You can't do that. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's where I think people start to say, okay, it, it, it's one thing to have a view that I don't agree with. It's another thing to break the law in order to express that view. Yeah. Yeah. On the same kind of topic, um, a lot of people, when they hear environmental science, they don't necessarily think that hunting should go along with that. So, I, I mean, people will often think that they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. So what would you say to that? Can they coexist? I think they can, they can coexist. I think the idea that um, hunting and environmental science are mutually exclusive comes from the end game for the two different stakeholder groups is completely different. Uh, from an environmental science point of view, uh, environment, they, they want to see introduced species exterminated mm. as best that they can. Um, now, in all honesty, with the technology uh, and the methods that we have at our disposal currently, it's impossible. We're never going to see that. So it's a moot point. The argument between environmental scientists and recreational hunters is is over a moot point. Um, whereas, whereas environment, so uh, recreational hunters would ideally like to see some species, some introduced species, um, possibly managed sustainably. Yeah, and and I think that's where the the two different ideals come into it. But again, both parties need to acknowledge that whether it be with poisoning, trapping, shooting with firearms. Um, or, or, gen- or genetic, um, which is a new thing that is apparently coming in, or pathogenic. These are all methods that are finite in, in their ability to control um, feral pests, and so they're always going to be here. They're always going to be a part of the of the landscape. Uh, it's just a matter of in in what sort of strength of numbers. Yeah. Um, and, and and so that's where the, the the difference is is in the agenda and the sentiment and what I think. Is, is sad is that the the policy makers um, who, who who get their, their stimulus for making policies, the information that they use to make policies to effectively oblige or deny hunters the ability to have access to public land. That that, that information comes from environmental scientists, and and so it, it's not a matter of whether or not. Um, the two things are mutually exclusive or whether or not they can coexist. It becomes an ideological issue and an issue of, of virtue signalling, saying mm. perhaps that we're not going to offer you access to state forests, whether or not your methods of pest management are effective, it's that we are not going to oblige you in enjoying the sport of shooting animals with firearms. And I think that's the issue, not necessarily that the methods that we use are effective. Um, they are effective, and, and, it's, and that's been shown in reports from New South Wales. Shooting is effective in combination with or supplementary to a suite of different measures, which we currently use anyway, which is traffic and prison. Yeah. Um, but the issue is one of um, uh, you know, moral posturing or, or, or virtue signalling, I think. Yeah. It's, it's something that you probably see um, more of and you would know a lot more about from your history with the environmental science stuff, but it's this, this ignorance, I suppose, that people have. They think, especially people who are against hunting, they think if we ban hunting, the animals don't die. 
But that's not the case <laughs> when you've got animals that, that are in plague populations, when you've got pest species and introduced species and things like that, their populations have to be managed no matter what. So whether it's hunting or whether it's by some other method like poisoning or trapping or culling or whatever it is, their populations have to be brought down to a manageable level. So I suppose that's something that the environmental scientists see a little bit more or, or understand a little bit more of that, whereas maybe the politicians who have been swayed a little bit more by, by public sentiment aren't thinking about so much or, or who knows, who knows what their motivation is at the end of the day. But I suppose that's something that we've... I think that's why we end up with policies that um, deny uh, recreational hunters the opportunity to have access to public land for pest management and recreational hunting. But we do have a parliament that would be happy to spend half a million dollars a year on helicopter, helicopter shooting or yeah. poisoning yeah. Yeah. Or, or trapping. Yeah. Um, because, because in their mind, if you don't enjoy it whilst you're doing it, then that becomes more morally acceptable. Yeah, and, and this is the thing that, that that gets me as well. If you if you tell you know, and by and large, if you speak to someone, you say like I've had crop protection permits for many years, and if you say to them, listen, I've got crop protection permits, you know, I, I go and I shoot animals, uh, you know, in order to accommodate whatever the requirement is for those crop protection permits, um, that they see that, you know, their acceptance of that is like, you know, well, okay, well, that seems fine to me. You know, that's necessary, somehow almost. necessary yeah. and, and also it may be logical because, you know, you've got to make sure the crops get to the people and all this kind of stuff. And I've even I've even had vegans argue that you know that that's that's a necessary thing you know where you know I've said to them but wait a minute I, I might I might hunt for my own enjoyment as in the process of hunting I enjoy but even your lifestyle costs animals their lives because you know I've got to do crop protection and I do do crop protection in order to maintain, you know, the food that gets on your table, even as a vegan or a vegetarian or whatever else. And they, yeah, they see that as a necessary right. thing, but they see what I do for my own capacity and to put meat on my table as an unnecessary thing. Yeah, yeah. and that's where the, the conflict or, or, or war, play, war plays out between uh, alternative realities and alternative truths. I think something that frustrates me from an environmental science point of view is people who are activists don't necessarily understand the concepts of, um, you know, wonderful scientific words like vigility, which refers to um, the ability of a particular species to cover large areas, or fecundity, which also refers to the to a species how often they have a litter and how many numbers are in those litters, and then you have the mortality rates and survival rates. And then you have issues like carrying capacity. So if, if the extreme left were obliged in their ideals of completely um, disarming um, all uh, private ownership or, or abolishing all private ownership and non-occupational ownership of firearms, you know, populations will explode exponentially mm-hmm. and then animals, animals will starve to death because they are competing for common resources. Yeah. Especially introduced species that don't actually have any natural predators here in Australia, they will outcompete and outstrip native animals. Mm-hmm. And so, the thing is, is what's the lesser of two evils? Turning a blind eye and saying no animal should be harmed, whilst the 
species that we have introduced and therefore have a responsibility and an obligation to manage effectively, they then become they then become a serious environmental issue, um, not just for our, our, our environment but also for our our animals because they uh, our native animals will starve because they uh, outcompeted for common resources with animals like pigs and rabbits and goats and foxes. Foxes and cats will prey directly on species, and so. The, the, the sweep of environmental issues stemming from the activity of introduced species is so broad and far-reaching that the average activists couldn't possibly get their head around it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We we, uh, we, we actually had um, we had first first-hand kind of knowledge of this last year. I mean, we like I said, we've been a part of crop protection and stuff like that for many years, but but um, last year we went to the Northern Territory and and. Um, and we've um, started including, you know, um, hunting up there as, as part of our suite of things for people to be able to do. Um, but um, one of the things that really struck myself and Jess while we were up there um, was the amount of feral animals that exist in the Northern Territory. I mean, it is just unbelievable. It, it, and, and they are smashing the, the flora and fauna. Mm. Um, absolutely smashing it i mean and and of all species you know that that you would consider that the donkey i mean most people would think a, a donkey is a fairly harmless inconsequential benign. yeah benign kind of you know um, animal yeah you, know, you know that that but there are there are an estimated five million of 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 these things you know um and one of the things that I think surprised us the most was even though they're one of the biggest competitors for food and things like that over there, I mean, they're fast, they live in herds, they breed pretty quickly and all of that. So they're almost like rabbits of the hooved animals over there. Yeah. They, were, they were emaciated. Yeah. You know, we were seeing entire herds of them, of 15, 20 animals that were so emaciated that from 180 metres away, you could see their backbones. Yeah. You know, you could see their hips protruding out and things like that. Because they just didn't have any food to eat and there'd up be, there. And there'd be a herd of 20, and then you'd go a kilometre and a half, be a herd of another 20. And then a kilometre and a half, another 20. You know, and it, yep. it, was, it, it was just group after group after. You, you could have shot these things all day long, and you wouldn't have made a dent in the, in the issue that they create for the ecology, for the, for the, for the fauna that in the area. Um, and you, couldn't, you would have run out of bullets. Yeah, talking about um, uh, illogical plans for uh, managing these species, one of, one of the comments we got about hunting the donkeys was that um, we should round them all up and we should send them to farms to protect the livestock. And it's just, it's like, you know, do, do you understand the, the process of trying to round up 5 million feral animals in the outback? I mean, just trying to get in there alone to do that, the infrastructure that you would need, the manpower that you would need, the machinery that you would need to do that, you know, and not, not to mention it, but the stress it puts on the animals to then relocate them somewhere else. I mean, a bullet is much more humane, much quicker, and, and it's over and done with, and you, you're actually dealing with the issue. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think, I think that's the issue, again, is that we're encountering people, uh, stakeholders whose views on an issue are ideologically driven. Yeah. It's not until the walls come down from from in front of people, um, the walls that they build for themselves,
themselves to block out people's views who who they find so offensive. Um, it's when people are actually in a position where they can absorb the facts that they begin to understand, okay, it's probably more humane for those five million donkeys to be shot in the head, as horrible mm. as it sounds, than to experience the stress of being wound up whilst mm. emaciated, put in the trucks. I, I guarantee you, you, you probably would kill most of them in the process of trying to round them up and transport them to a place. You would kill them with kindness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. tend to agree. Yeah. Trying to round them up with helicopters, put them in some kind of holding pen, stick them in trucks, and then yeah. transport them halfway yeah. across the country. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, Not to mention the cost to the federal government for that. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Which inevitably comes from us. Yeah, exactly, the taxpayer. So going on to something a little bit different, what is the current hunting situation in Queensland like? current hunting situation in Queensland is that individuals who want to be able to enjoy hunting need to be well-connected with private landholders. Uh, otherwise, they can join two programs that are run by the SSAA, one being Farmer Assist, which for all intents and purposes, it, it, it achieves its end, it does it does quite well, but, but basically that's about them brokering a relationship, that them being SSAA, brokering a relationship between landholders and sporting shooters and hunters, uh, whereby hunters are able to um, put their name on a register and farmers basically, you know, for want of a better term, draw their name out of the hat mm. and, and they travel, you know, extensive distances to assist farmers on their property with pest management, which is... Um, which can mean, uh, you know, you drive to Charleville from Brisbane to, you know, knock over a couple of hundred kangaroos. And for some for some stakeholders, that might um, scratch the itch, mm. but but it doesn't it doesn't meet the needs of, of those of us who want to walk through the bush as quietly as possible uh, with a thirty thirty on your back, looking for uh, Bambi. Yeah. yeah. The other one. Well, Bambi's dad, other, at least. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm more about meeting my friends than I am about antlers on the wall. But, um, we're we're a bit know, of both. We yeah. like we like taking Bambi's dad and then taking his meat too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't exactly. mind the old bucks. Um, the other program, sorry to interrupt. The other program that WSWA run is called Conservation Wildlife Management, and yeah. a couple of basic facts about that program. Um, I'm not going to knock it because it, it has a purpose um, and it achieves that purpose. Um, it has 700 members and those 700 members are able to participate in pest management activities that are that function collaboratively between SSAAs, CWM, um, sub-branch for want of a better term, and national parks. And so they're not allowed to take game heads, they're not allowed to take game meat, they're not allowed to take photographs and they're not allowed to disclose um, the details of particular operations and their exact location. Um, they're, so they're not even allowed to take the meat. Well, basically they shoot it and let it lie. Huh. Yeah, there's, there's, there's certain rules that exist here around crop protection like that also. I think the biggest um, ones are in Victoria too. Yeah, and in like Victoria. That. And just that, that, it just them, shocks me that that exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, why, why wouldn't you consume it if you could? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, in all honesty, I don't have a full understanding of, of, of the reasoning behind that. I think what national parks are, are trying to do is protect the, 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 the nature of what a, what a 
mandate is to do, and that is to conserve um, a particular type of, of threatened habitat and and the wildlife that live in it. And, but, and I respect that. But as doesn't that just but, paint the picture that you're only a trigger man? I mean, this is exactly what most of the antis... I mean, I'm not like I'm not trying to bash the program either. I think the SSAA do it do it a great job, you know, in Australia for the most part. But and and I don't know the conditions they've had to arrange this under. But but at the same time, that to me just speaks trigger man. You know, I'm just turning up with a load yeah. of load of load of rounds, just to you know smash them down you know with with how secretive that sounded and how uh, how you can't take the meat it's like you're basically a cia hitman <laughs> for animals yeah yeah from a from a from a pest from a pest management point of view that that's probably a fair assessment but i think i think what what people need to understand is that that particular program serves that particular purpose it's not yeah. there yeah. for people to participate in recreational hunting um we're, we're just not there yet yeah, yeah. Uh, I think know, I think it's a, it's almost a symptom. Other jurisdictions around the world are in a place where people can hunt in national parks, and that's just because that's not you know that's attributed directly to um, the maturity of those societies and their more open-minded attitude towards hunting as a pastime. You know, CWM like I said, I, I really don't want to um, be critical of it because I think its purpose is solely for pest management for national parks. For the, yeah. The 28, yeah. the 28 national parks that have a contractual arrangement with WSWA. Mm. Um, or, um, what I'm campaigning for here in Queensland in, in having access to state forests is a completely different animal. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's about sporting shooters and recreational hunters in Queensland having the free ability to make a choice. Am I going to gain access to state forests for pest management because that's what I'm about? Yeah. Or am I going to gain access to state forests for recreational game hunting? Now, as an environmental scientist, I'm all about both. I want to get in there and smash absolutely every fox and cat and, and, and feral dog that I see. But on the other hand, if I'm in there and I happen to stumble across a deer, I'm going to admire it and then I'm going to settle my crosshairs and I'm going to squeeze the trigger. Mm. And, and and for me... The, you got confident you know, nods here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, From all around the table. But I think, I think what people are missing here is that as corny as it sounds, it all depends on what's in your heart when you squeeze the trigger. Mm. How do I see this animal? Yeah. Is, it, is it to me a pest or is it to me a prize game animal? Um, and that all depends on the environment in which you are shooting as well. Now, a state forest it can be either one of the two, but on a private property, if you're if you're if you have an invitation from a primary producer to control pests on their property, they want they don't care if it's got a if it's if it's how, however many points it has on either side of its head. Yeah. Uh, to them, it's it's out competing their livestock for a scant resource, so you'd better shoot it, otherwise you don't get invited back. Yeah, I think to me it's kind of it, it, it's frustrating because it's a symptom of this kind of broader compartmentalization of society where you know in the past people used to go out and hunt and they would hunt for meat and they would hunt like so for their own subsistence and they would also hunt for the skins you know and they liked bringing back the head as well and so it was all of and they also did it for the experience too you know that was why they had cave paintings of it and things like that because they actually enjoyed going out and and having that bit of a man versus animal the chase between them so 
to us, it's always been that, and and it's, the, we touched on this a little bit earlier about the the meat and the trophy. It's it's like we've gotten to this stage in society where you have to pick you a side. You know, yeah. you've got to pick a side. You're either a trophy hunter or a meat hunter. You're either for pest control or for recreational hunting. You know, and it's like. Yes, you might have a primary motivation. When you go to, you know, with our pest control permits, we might go to a farm to do pest control for a farmer and that's the primary motivation for us being there. But that doesn't mean it's, it's the only motivation and it doesn't mean that it's the only way we can use that resource either. You know, we might be doing it. We go and shoot wallabies for pest control down here, but we bring the meat back for our dogs. We also take the tails and we give them to the farmer for his dogs, you know. We've taken skins back and we've tanned them up when they were winter skins and they were nice and thick and we've brought them home, you know, so... There's all of these different facets to it for us, which I suppose is what we're trying to build with I Am Hunter and trying to teach people about and and bring people on board with is this idea that you don't have to pick a side, you know? You don't have to just be a meat hunter. You don't have to just be a trophy hunter. You can be all of the above. Or you can be one or the other. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, but I think that this is the this is the world that we're living now, where people create dichotomies yeah. for, for the purpose of a point of difference, and that's and that's largely due in part to the political system that we've created, and 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 our media system, and and you're either right or you or, or you're left, and yeah. there is no middle ground, and and it's an extremes of of the two, and the reason for it, from what I can tell, is that our our, our major party or two party preferred system. Yeah. They're, they're chasing the popular vote and they're chasing the popular policy. So they uh, outwardly, no, I don't mean to get political, but they outwardly don't want to appear to have a position on a particular issue until something becomes popular. And yeah. then they put yeah. their weight behind it. Today, this is the flavour of the day. Today, we're against this. Today, we're for that. Today, we're about uh, minority groups or those who consider their interests to be special. Um, so we will put our weight behind this or that accordingly. And, and so what they seek to do is to create division, to create a point of difference, mm. because our two major parties have just become so similar in that they, they're obliged to stand for nothing uh, because our society, as far as I'm concerned, is very fickle. Mm. Um, and so they want, so they need to be in a position of standing for nothing so that they can jump on any of the next thing that comes along. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's why we have such a, a, a dichotomous sort of, ideal system yeah so polarized mm. so daniel exactly. let's uh, let's um uh, go go a bit further into this um i guess proposal for the three-year trial i mean it, it absolutely amazes me mate and i think that, and even when i was talking to my, my wife about this about talking to you yourself uh you know she she said to me you haven't been hunting long she didn't say that it was only a year but she said you hadn't been hunting long but you've put through this proposal for a three-year trial, I mean, I, I was just sitting there going, wow, how does a guy that's only really just started out in hunting get to that stage where he's putting through and immediately he says, you know, we, we actually need to do something about this politically? I think, I think it came from despair, basically. Mm. Um, because I live in Brisbane. This is where my family wants to stay. Um, and, 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 and really, in, in a family of three people, I am, but one person, so I, you know, I can't just enforce my will and say we're moving out to the country so that I can go hunting. <laughs> um, you know, I, I live in I live in Brisbane, and and that's something that I'm just going to have to deal with. Brisbane represents a lot of opportunities for me, and, and so far it's been very kind to me. Um, but it's also a limitation in the sense that if I 
if I wanted to take on the, the you know, if I was to follow all, all of the old boys, all of the guys who are, you know, reckon that they've spent a lifetime hunting and shot record numbers of whatever and, um, you know, it's all young people's fault and, you know, they just don't understand how it works. You need to drive out into the country and drive down dirt roads and knock on doors and, yeah. You know, not everybody in the modern world has time to drive six hours into, you know, back and beyond past the black stump mm. to go disturbing to go disturbing farmers who already have enough on their plate to deal with without having to talk to a young person from the city asking, "Can I bring my gun to your place?" Yeah. So, so I got sick and tired of thinking, "Well, I'm never going to have a free opportunity. I'm never going to have the liberty in Queensland to make the choice to say this weekend I'm going hunting." I want to do something about that because I can't be the only person in this situation. It turns out I'm not. By a long shot. I mean, um, I, one of the things that we that um, Beth also said to me was that you, you were aiming for kind of 10,000 signatures on a petition. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, of course, you've exceeded that well and truly. So, How many? Uh, what's, it, what's the number at now, Daniel, if you don't mind me asking? 15,890 something at the moment. Well, I'm, look, I'm, I'm confident that we will um, eclipse 16,000 before the petition closes. Yeah. 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 And when is the cutoff date? Uh, the 24th of February. Okay. And what, what did you think about that, that kind of show of support that you got? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very encouraged by it when I compare it with other petitions that have been raised on. on different social or political issues in the last year and a half. But on the, on the other hand, when I consider that there's, you know, there's over 150,000 licensed firearm owners in Queensland. Yeah. And with the amount of media exposure that I've managed to um, to generate, not not just me, but I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've had a number of colleagues who have come alongside and formed a team of people who have worked tirelessly over the last six months at pushing this petition to... To the place that it's at now, uh, you know, with the amount of media attention and the amount of stakeholder engagement I've been able to do, um, when considering that, you know, out of one hundred and fifty thousand, I've been able to generate sixteen thousand signatures. Mm. Like I said, as far as petitions are concerned, in the last twelve months, it, it's fantastic. It's, it's encouraging. But considering that, there's, there's probably not too many excuses for sporting shooters not to know about it at this point in time. Yeah. Um, mm. I, it's 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 sort of disappointing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'd love to be able to paint the thing in as a positive a light as possible. And I and I think as the person, as the main proponent, as the person who's raised the petition and is responsible for driving it, I, I owe the petition and, and the people who have signed it as much positivity as I, as, I, as I possibly can muster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but the facts are that there are 150,000 plus shooters who could not give the staff enough mm. to take three minutes to sign a petition to achieve an opportunity for all of us. I, and I, I kind of get that. I mean, as much as, you know, I know it's disappointing, but having been in in and around hunting since I was a kid, I can, I can tell you right now that a lot of the old boys out there that you talk about that are kind of in my category... Um, <laughs> You know, they um, they just want to quietly go about what they're doing. And a lot of them are not really interested in joining the crowd. And, and unfortunately, that means that their voice is only going to be heard around the fireplace, which, 
same as what you're trying to do is one of the reasons why we've put advocacy as a key component of um, both Hunt Shack and I Am Hunter because I think that that time has passed. If we continue um, as um, as a cultural group, as a hunting group, to just um, you know only talk about it, talk about these things to our mates around the fireplace, um, then we're going to disappear. Um, exactly, we're, we are an endangered species. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because because the only way we we sway the opinion of those people that are sitting on the fence is by letting them know that there is another voice, and that voice actually is a rational voice. It's not a stupid one. It it it's one that's based on history. It's based on culture. Uh, it's based on experience of actually getting out there and doing it. Um, and, um, and these guys, you know, that, um, they're good at what they do, but you know, that a lot of the, a lot of those old boys just don't want to be in the spotlight or a part of any, what they would consider activism on, even on a hunting behalf. And I think too, there's, there's probably a little bit of that feeling too, of, well, nothing's changed so far. So why is this going to be any different as well? So it's just trying to change that too and, and give people the encouragement that we do have a voice and it can be heard if we do get together and we do start to stand together and speak out. Yeah, I think some one of the things, a couple of the things that I've encountered, what, what, what a little so sad with me to a great degree is that the, the, the bulk of the opposition that I've had towards this proposal um, comes from within the shooting sports, mm. and 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 that is whether it be vested interests who you know maybe people who work in in, in trapping feral dogs and or, or um, uh, pest management or, or um, people who, who for instance run safaris or deer guides or people who manage deer genetics on a on a, on a large scale. Those who you know the person who shoots trap isn't a, isn't um, really perturbed about issues that are pertaining to those who shoot pistols. People who shoot pistols aren't really care about issues that affect bench rest. Bench rest shooters aren't really interested in things that um, have a negative impact on hunters because they don't hunt. Or people who within hunting there are, there are those who have access to suitable hunting grounds uh, who don't really give a stuff if other people have that opportunity or not. Mm. And so, whilst ever there is um, disunity amongst the diversity that makes up the shooting sports, where our growth is, our growth is going to be stunted, and our our development, our the public's perception of us, and our ability to combat the the, the what is a barrage and onslaught, a relentless every, every day. Every day there is something coming up in your social media feed about some ideologically driven opposition to our lifestyle and our way of life, and we are ill-equipped, unorganised, and and completely unable to combat that. Why? Because we're not unified. Mm. Yeah. Um, and 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 what are we going to do about it? We we are combating a group of people who are ideologically driven who don't mind embellishing the truth. They're well-resourced, they're well-funded, and they have the air of the media and of the parliament. And what can you do to combat reckless hate? What, what can we do? You know, how, how are we going to 
what retort do we possibly have against a group of people who are fueled by reckless hate whilst ever we're as disorganised and ununified as we are? Yeah, yeah, well, um, certainly, certainly not going to help our cause to keep fighting among each other. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, it's one of the things I suppose. I, you know, we've we've received a lot of support from all around the world now with Hunt Shack, um, and now introducing I Am Hunter. And for the most part, we've been absolutely overwhelmed by that, and really, really happy about it. Really pleased with it. We've made connections, you know, throughout Australia and and globally as well. But one of the saddest things I think we've found is that just infighting, you know, between all the different groups and all the different types of hunters and things like that. That's one of the things that we'd probably like to see change the most and I think is, is as you're saying, something that we need to address first before we even try and attack the the idea of the anti-hunters and, and what they're trying to spread about us. It's, it's convincing the rest of the hunting group that, you know, we don't need to hate each other. We've all got a valid reason for doing what we're doing, you know. We can all go about our business. We don't need to be fighting with each other. I've I've left I've left hunting clubs because of this, you know, because of infighting and stuff, and it's just there's there's no value at all mm. in, in any way, um, and it really disappoints me personally when I see people attacking other people because of a, a particular point of view they have over how you should hunt or how you should shoot or you know these kind of and. I mean, you know, the, the, people come from all sorts of walks of life, so, you know, we, we, we can't discount that. And and there are keyboard warriors on both sides of the fence, so um, we, which is just unfortunate. But at the same time, you know, there, there seems to be... Social media gives a groundswell to whatever's popular. And um, unfortunately, that can be completely the wrong thing. You know, or something that really is um, not what we would consider um, a valuable exercise at the end of the day, but because it's popular, it, it continues to grow. Um, exactly. I, I think one thing. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, but no, you're right. One mate. thing that I want. The one thing that I want for listeners to understand is that I have exhausted myself without sounding like a martyr. Without being dramatic, I have I have gone to great lengths to use what limited platform I have as an individual to engage with every stakeholder or as many stakeholders as possible. And I've I've, I've spoken to some people, and I've spoken to peak bees, I've spoken to peak agricultural bodies, I've spoken with politicians. Um, you know, I'm getting around as many people as I possibly can, and everybody's point of view matters. Um, you know, and. and and, and that's and that's the thing that I'm trying to bring across. There are things that, because of the, the nature of the delicate situation that we have with the Queensland Parliament at the moment, and and the media environment and our social environment that we have, there are things that I can't say. No, I can't say that I support a certain ideal, or I support a, a certain attitude or, or, or practice or method. Um, you know, and so I would like to to say individually, you know, individually acknowledge everybody's point of view and address everyone's concerns. But I can't use what little platform I have to just open slab and say I support this because if I say something that key stakeholders don't like, then whatever whatever uh, open mindedness that they might might have will, will evaporate. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you end up in undermining your own, you know, what you're trying to achieve. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, um, you know, my face isn't hardened towards any one stakeholder mm. as opposed to, you know, to another, so to speak. We've, um, we saw that on the, um, the Queensland government website, there's a counter petition. Or I, I don't know if it's directly a counter petition to what you're um, proposing, but they're they're petitioning for a total hunting ban in Queensland. Um, from your environmental science perspective, your environmental science perspective um, and background, what do you think? What kind of effect do you think a total hunting ban in Queensland would have? And if that was to gain ground and start to spread across Australia, what what wider effects do you think that would have on the Australian environment and our flora and fauna? I guess I guess it depends on what what people define as hunting and what people define as pest management. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think the objection is entirely ideological based. If, if, you know, just from reading the petition, people who believe that no animal should be harmed, especially not um, for someone's enjoyment. You know, and, and that's fine. If people want to have that view, then and so be it. But here's what I think is going to happen. If they were to be in pest management and hunting, um, we would see uh, an explosion of, you know, we know what rabbits are capable of doing. Um, mm. so we look at the, the difference between K-selected and R-selected, what they call K-selected and R-selected species. And, um, you know, my professor's probably banging his hand against his head because I can't remember what the difference is between the two. But basically one is, is opportunistic and will seize an opportunity and breed very rapidly and have large litters all of a sudden and overwhelm the environment if the conditions become suitable. Now that represents animals like cane toads and rabbits and foxes. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you'll have um, a different type of selected species like, um, let's say, horses or donkeys or camels. Uh, they will, you know, they won't breed often. They only have one young at a time when they do and they might have 50-50 mortality rate. Either, either way... Um, Either way, both both types of species groups are going to grow exponentially to a point. Um, they will, as I said, outstrip all livestock, all of our native fauna. Uh, the, the environmental damage, the spread of pathogens and bacteria, um, the spread of weeds, just on you know, um, just on the, the hides of animals. Uh, you know the, the damage to the landscape. You look at things like turbidity, salinity, um, siltation. Um, you know the way that that has an impact on the way siltation and, and turbidity and salinity have an impact on aquatic environments. Yeah. Um, benthic environments. These are all these are all things that people don't sort of stop and think about when they're driven solely by ideologies. Yeah, I think too, one of, one of the things that kind of gets us the most is is the lack of understanding around what happens in a local council area to keep animals out of, mm. you know, your suburbs and your cities and things like that. Mm. And if the animal populations were to explode, I mean, you look at just some of the issues that they have in New South Wales and Victoria on the roads with the huge kangaroo populations that they've got. When you have a mob of kangaroos start coming across the road and you're talking about big, you know, reds or greys and things like that, and they come through a windscreen of someone's car, 
you know, that can total a car. It can kill an entire car full of people if they end up, you know, going off the road. And so it becomes a danger to people, not not just physically, but, you know, like you're talking about with the pet, with the um, pathogens and things like that, they start spreading diseases that travels through the livestock, you know, and then you start ending up with things like the Black Pet Plague when rats get out of control because no one was hunting the rats. <laughs> <laughs> The, the poison, the poison of, of yeah. rats is a legitimate thing. Yeah, yeah, and local councils do this on, you know, they do it all the time to manage these populations to make sure that everybody in the suburbs and in cities doesn't have to worry about it. You look at the control of birds around airports so that when you're taking off, you don't have planes dropping out of the sky because there's flocks of birds going through the engines, you know. These are all things that have to be taken care of that people, I suppose, they don't think about in their day-to-day life. They don't realise their cost of their life to animals. So it makes it easier to make a decision to go, oh, well, I'm going to be a vegetarian or I'm going to be a vegan because then I won't harm any animals. They think that the, the yeah. only way that they're harming animals is through the food that they eat, and it's just not the case. No, exactly. It's through, it's through their entire environmental footprint. Yeah. It's through, the, it's through them turning on a light switch through yeah. to starting their car through depressing the button on their electric toothbrush. Yeah, mm. there are finite resources in the world, you know, yeah, we're exactly. all competing for them at the end of the day, so we've exactly. just got to be responsible exactly. in how we manage that. And, and we cannot tell people not to have children as much as I would like to. <laughs> um, from, you know, just the, the political correct nature of our society, you yeah. know, I tell lefties not to have children, they're going to be <laughs> I didn't laugh. It's a problem that's going to persist. Yeah. And so we need to better manage our pervasive use of environmental resources. And we're not doing that at the moment. And, and, and those who say that no animals should be, should, be should be harmed, they don't even have an understanding of that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I, find, I find the whole argument fruitless. And ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's kind of that's what happens when you go to such extremes, I suppose, of the spectrum. You you lose all sight of, you lose all perspective, you lose all sight of the evidence and any kind of objective fact at all. Yeah, you're driven by emotion and emotion only. And, and when you've got when you've got two groups of people buried in trenches shooting at each other, mm. and and they won't take a step towards each other, then. And you're going to continue to have this type of issue where people end up disenchanted and disenfranchised, especially with the political system. But but people 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 can't say that there's a face to the to the name on Facebook. Yeah. That yeah. They're ridiculing and that they're saying horrible things to. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how people's attitudes soften, even with going from being a keyboard warrior to actually talking to someone on the phone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What happens when you, let alone what happens when you encounter someone who has an opposing view to yours in the street? We've, we've um, had it a little bit because we've got our I Am Hunter shirts. And so we'll often, you know, we'll wear those and we'll go out for lunch in town or something like that. And you can, you can almost see the people that would, would be the keyboard warriors because they give yeah, you this dirty, dirty look. You and know? they seem twisted they just, as they walk away. They look so mad, but they don't do anything about it. They just give you that dirty look and they walk in the opposite direction or they walk straight past you. you know? and it's, all, it's, it's, it's somehow sickly satisfying to watch yeah. the pain in their face going, oh, if only I was on Facebook, I would tear shreds and, into and you. And you know, you know that, that after lunch when they do their Facebook post... <laughs> they're, they're going to be going, you wouldn't believe what I've seen today. How terrible is this? You know? 
Mm. And exactly, but what they don't understand is that that attitude and, and that thought process is entirely their choice. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah absolutely. You know, that's entirely their choice. You're not out there to offend them by wearing an Iron Hunter shirt. They have made their choice to be offended. Yeah. And that's the emotionally weak society that we live in. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I um, I I had that um. It was a completely different different subject matter, but a friend said that to me the other day. Offense is never given; it's only taken. People exactly. only ever people never mean to give offense to people, you know, in their day to day lives. What they well, do. yeah, mostly. <laughs> in most cases, for the most part, offense is taken by the person who decides. I, I may to take be offense. guilty of offending a few deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> But the, but the problem is that it, for the most part, it's just like a grudge, you know, holding a grudge against someone. It only ever harms you, you know. It's, it's the poison you want to kill someone else, but you only end up harming yourself with it. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel, listen, it's been really, really great talking to you, and I've really enjoyed it, mate. I'd, lo- I'd love to talk for another several hours, I, I, no doubt. Um, uh, first thing I'd like to do is um, is say to you, listen, if, you, if you're ever in Tassie, um, you know, let us know, and we'll... We'll take you out hunting Tassie style and make sure you um <laughs> you, you you get you get some good fun while you're here. Um, second of all, um, what I'd like to ask you is, what does it look like um, if this trial succeeds for you? What does it look like? Well, I'm hoping that one of my one of my professors equips me with a great piece of advice. He said, Daniel, policy is never developed just because somebody wants something. You know, you need to have stimulus. You need to have solid data that shows people facts. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to give hunters access to public land here in Queensland indefinitely just because we want it. It's, that's, that's the whole basis for the trial. It helps people to feel comfortable with a compromise that any decision to give hunters access to public land can be reversed if the pro- if the project doesn't appear to be hasn't hasn't been successful, yeah. So what I see moving what I see moving forward is um, if either one of the two major parties decides to, if, let's say for instance, um, you know, Labor supporting the bill and uh, supporting the proposal and, and passing legislation uh, in in the current parliament, you know, that's that's unrealistic. But but they might they might surprise me. They might. Possible, and we may end up with state forest hunting. Um, the alternative is that the LNP might get behind it and, and take its 2020 election as, a, as an election promise. And if they stick to their word, we may end up with an LNP government. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of where I was going with this. Um, either, either way, there, I'm going to have to continue to push for any approved program to be well participated yeah um, to be well to be well pushed because the more people you have participating in something the more data you're going to have the greater the impact over the three-year period and the greater the um, emphasis you're going to be able to place on the message saying hey X amount of tens of thousands of sporting shooters have participated in state forest hunting in Queensland and and, and so here's the Economic benefit. Here's the environmental benefit. Here's the um, the, the the benefits of primary production as far as you know mitigating damages to uh, crops, farming infrastructure, fencing, not having pigs come in and um, crapple through your dam water, and then rendering your dam water absolutely useless, so it just sits there and you can't. 
Yeah, but you've got to have that evidence from people actually doing it, you know, to take back to the government. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I, I am I am confident that if the scheme is is passed, if there's if there's legislation put in place to say that yes, okay, sporting shooters are going to have access to state forests for a three year period, I'm confident that it'll be well participated. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I just hope that it's well managed mm. and that thing that 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 trends are well logged, that there's evidence, so that moving forward proponents of the scheme can say, okay, here's what we've done in three years, let's extend it to five years. Yeah. And then after that one, let's extend it to seven years. And then let's make it an indefinite thing. Mm. Yeah. Because over, over a long period of time, public perception of sporting shooters will improve. Yeah. 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 Well, good luck with it, Daniel. And um, if you do manage to get it to pass, I'm sure we'll be... Up in Queensland for a bit of hunting <laughs> over the next couple Absolutely. of years. Look, I, um, I'm, I'm optimistic and I, and I look forward to it. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you guys. No worries, mate. It's been it, it really has been our pleasure, and um, hope to talk to you again at some stage soon. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, mate. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Iron Hunter podcast, guys. We had a great time chatting to Daniel um, about some of the issues facing Queensland and I suppose the wider Australian environment as well. And it's always good to have a perspective from someone that's spent time studying this stuff to know that hunting... Yes, stuff, Dad. (laughs) That hunting does have a positive effect and it does have its place in managing populations. It does have its place even in modern society. So we always love... um, hearing some of those statistics, hearing some of those arguments and being able to share it with you guys. So if you have any questions, please let us know. Get in contact with us either by email or on social media um, and we will look forward to chatting to you next time. And if you do have anything you would like us to do a podcast on, send that through as well um, to team at net. Thank you very much.